I'm going to make the decision not to read the sermon text today, which is very odd. You're more than welcome to open your Bibles. It's 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. It would probably take about seven or eight minutes for me to read that, and I was prepared to do so, but we have taken a bit of time. I want to slow down on this part and on the Lord's Supper to come. So today, your homework is to go home and read the Bible, the inspired part of today, the Word of God, and see if what indeed what I teach you is true. This sermon is for absolutely everyone in the room who life seems like life is messed up. Am I speaking your language? Is something just not fun, just not right, just not like it should be? I mean, there are people here who think they were going along well, things were going well, and then it's like someone out there messed them up. Maybe even God messed up your happy parade. And then there are others who, in addition to what God has allowed or done and allowed other people to do to us, have contributed to their own mess. Maybe even in the way that we responded to the initial mess. Trying to think of an example in my life, and it's kind of like maybe let's go back and not get political here, but the whole COVID thing. We were all going along nice, and then all of a sudden, some disease from somewhere else came and started affecting people. And it was like someone messed up my little happy world. And then I, I, I was told to go get this vaccine that was going to go fix everything, and I went and got it. And now I'm sitting there going, huh. My heart's still beating. I'm still okay. But I'm wondering, did I make the right move? Should I have done something different? You see the difference between the mess out there that comes upon us and then the way we respond. Sometimes we take that mess and make it even messier. Well, this is exactly what we do. This is what David does in the text that you're going to read this afternoon. David is someone whose life is externally messy. Sometimes God allows our life to grow messy. For example, David knows that God loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. God chose him to be the Messiah, sent Samuel his way. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. The Holy Spirit's never going to leave him. The Holy Spirit empowers him to do great things. David is going to be king in the land. Isn't this great He goes out and fights wars. He wins. People sing. They applaud. Isn't it fantastic when God gives us a rosy day? But God is now allowing David to be messed with. Saul is incredibly displeased with him. Saul knows the Holy Spirit has been taken from me. It has fallen on him in strange measure. Saul knows that Solomon, I mean, that Samuel has already told him, your days are coming to an end and you're not passing this throne along to your son because I've already chosen someone better than you. Saul is seeing there's something special about this guy named David. Saul realizes that Israel loves him, Jonathan loves him, Samuel loves him, and God loves him. But Saul doesn't love him because Saul is filled with narcissistic, self-worshipping love. Therefore, Saul hates him on the inside, and he's going to murder him on the outside. Murderous thoughts are going to be shown forth in murderous actions, and Saul is just incorrigible in this. He will not stop. 
And yet God allows Saul to exist. Wait, God has already said, David, you're my man after my own heart. You're going to be king. He sees you're my Christ and this is my antichrist. And yet God who has all power, God who is always around, who sees everything and loves David, is still allowing Saul to harm his king. Why does God do that? David's going to ask that question. Saul maligns him behind his back. He humiliates him by giving his daughter to another man, even though he was promised to David. He sends David on dangerous missions, hoping the Philistines will take care of business. Saul hurls spears at him, sends hitmen to his house, as we've seen in previous passages. When that doesn't work, David is a man on the run. Like Jesse James, he's a wanted man. Like Jason Bourne, he doesn't know who he can trust. Like Dr. Richard Kimball, he is the fugitive. And he's done nothing wrong, but he's a man on the run. Saul sends his men chasing him all throughout the land. If you remember last week's funny story, where they came and they tried to take him, but they ended up falling down and prophesying. Finally, Saul says, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And he goes, God humiliates Saul on that day by turning him into a naked prophet for a day and a night. So here's David. God loves you, David, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Here's David. Things got messy really quick and not through any fault of his own. David has no shelter. David has no sword. David has no supper. He has no food. David is separated from his bride. He's separated from his family. He's separated from his best friend. He's separated from his favorite prophet. He's separated from his soldiers. He's separated from his people. He's separated from his mission. You could use D's all, use D's all day long. He's in danger. He's in distress. He's despairing. He's depressed. All of this, not because he's necessarily done anything wrong, but because God has allowed his life to get really messy. You got to think he's weary, sad, sorrowful, fearful. Just read his Psalms. Are you watching? Hey, God, do you care? What about your promises? Do you have a plan? Are things going according to plan? Do you win? You identifying with that? Someone rain on your parade? Has everything gotten messy? Yes, sometimes God allows our life to get messy, and then sometimes God allows us to make our lives even more messy, and that's what you want to see here. David travels to Nob. He's going to a place where the tabernacle is found. He's going to a place where the high priest is found. He's going to a place where the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim are found. He's going to the place, it's called the city of priests. So David wisely is running. Maybe Samuel sent him there. Maybe Jonathan sent him there. But, and I believe based upon what happens with the bread that it's probably the Sabbath day. So put the pieces together. David, in his messiness, runs to the house of God, to the priests of God, on the day of God, to get help from God. 
And that's not a bad plan. That's what we'd like you to do when things are in trouble. Come talk to us. We, got, we have God's word. We have God's spirit. We can pray and love and support and encourage. This is what David does. He shows up and Ahimelech knows him well. Everybody knows David. They're singing songs about him. Ahimelech probably has ministered to David before as they have sought the guidance of the Lord together. But on this day, Ahimelech begins to tremble. Why? Because David is alone. That's just not good. He asks him, why are you alone? At this point, David should just tell the truth and trust God. I mean, after all, he's seen God show up with the lion and the bear. He saw God show up when there was Goliath and they went and chased down all the Philistines. He saw God show up when he had to go kill 200 men and show up with body parts. David has consistently seen the Lord operate on his behalf. And up until this point, he has been a model man in the way that he has somehow had some great degree of faith that would be great for us to have as well. But David disbelieves, he fears, he makes foolish decisions, he fails, and he harms others. That's what these two chapters are. So now if I am messing up your understanding of David, I'm sorry, not really. He's just like every other biblical hero who has days when they're zeros. Abraham and Sarah went down hard. Noah got intoxicated. Jacob was the deceiver. Judah was the fornicator. Moses had anger issues. And Aaron, the worship leader, was horrible in the way that he led worship. Samson was the mighty man in lots of ways. In the words of William Blakey, we enter into a somewhat painful part of David's history. He is not living so near to God as before. And in his consequences, and in consequence, his course becomes more carnal and more crooked. Yes, David's life has become messy, and he adds to it by making a royal mess of things. I don't know why David lies. Maybe he's just embarrassed that he used to be on, on top of the mountain, and now here he is a fugitive. Maybe he doesn't trust Ahimelech, because Ahimelech's brother is now Saul's new chaplain. Maybe he sees Doeg, this guy, in the vicinity and realizes the walls have ears. Maybe he is loving Ahimelech or trying to by giving plausible deniability so that Ahimelech doesn't know anything that's happened. But he lies. Ahimelech says, why are you here alone? And David's response is, shh, I'm on a secret mission from the king. And if I told you, I'd have to kill you. David then says, and all my men, shh, they're over there waiting on me. David then says, he continues his lie. I was so eager to serve Saul. He was so eager to send me. He loved me so much and needed this done. I was so eager to love him that I went that I forgot to leave without lunch and without a sword. Uh, okay. Do you have any food? Do you have any bread? At this point, the answer is yes. 
I don't have any normal bread, no grocery store bread, but I do have the bread that we place before the Lord that is placed on the table of showbread that is only for priests, but I do have some. Do you have a sword? Ahimelech kind of must smile and say, you know I have a sword. I mean, that is kind of a funny question. No one comes to the church and says, hey, pastor, do you have a gun? Do you have a sword? Why would a priest have a sword? Because David had taken Goliath's sword and dedicated it to the Lord, and it was wrapped in a linen cloth hidden behind the ephod. And Hamilton says, yes, I have food, and yes, I have a sword. At this point, David looks over, and he sees Doeg. Who is Doeg? Doeg is an, a descendant of Esau who hated Jacob. Doeg is an Edomite, and they hate Israel. Doeg is a servant of Saul, and Doeg will prove to be every bit the Antichrist that Saul is. David sees Doeg, and he hits the road. And this is when he really makes a mess of things. I mean, David comes up with this great idea. Laura is the great idea filter in my family. She is the one who looks at me and lets me know when my great ideas are not such great ideas. Here's David's plan. I'm going to leave the promised land. I'm going to leave God's house. I'm going to leave the place where God has called me to minister. I'm going to leave the place where the prophets and the priests are found. I'm going to leave the place where I have a mission to accomplish. I'm going to leave the promised land and I'm going to go like Edward Snowden to the other side. I'm going to go out of all the places I can go. The best idea I have is I, David, am going to go to Gath. Gath is one of the five major cities of the Philistines. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. Wait, it gets better. I'm going to run from my troubles over, away from God's people. I'm going to trust King Achish in Gath. I'm going to go to the city of Goliath with the sword of Goliath. And I'm going to be incognito. Oh, David, Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his what? Tens of thousands. Recently, 200 men have lost their lives and body parts. Women are singing their songs everywhere, and because of Spotify, the Philistines are listening, and they know these songs. Some of them have run for their life from this not-warrior-like looking warrior because he's something different about David. So he, his plan is to go in and hide and find refuge and safety and peace, and, and life will be a little less messy as I am in Gath. It doesn't take them long to figure out who he is. King Achish's servants grab him. At that point, it says David fears. You can also read your Psalms and know that at that point, David goes to prayer. Psalms 34 and 56 are things you can read this afternoon. Then David comes up with this next great plan. 
I'm going to pretend I'm mad. <laughs> he, he might be mad to come up with such a plan, but now I'm going to look like it. He looks insane, like he's losing it. He starts scratching in the wood gates. He lets his beer grow, and then he lets the spittle come down. And this is God's man, the man after God's own heart. What a mess. This is us. We were forgiven or something, now we're royalty. We're supposed to be God's children, his delight. We're supposed to let our light shine before men that they can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We're supposed to have our acts together and be model citizens so people want to come worship like us. And sometimes life gets messy and then we mess up. What a picture of sadness. But here's the good news. Even if we follow our own understanding, even if we plot and scheme and end up going from the frying pan into the fire, even if we make a mess of things, what happens? In our messiness, God graciously provides. This is a story, these two chapters of David. Get this. While he is in the process of lying, while he is in the process of not trusting God, while even in the very act of sinning, God provides holy bread for him. And Jesus says, that's acceptable. And while in the process of dishonoring God, God provides a sword for him. What's going on? He doesn't deserve this. That's exactly why we say God graciously provides. This is what God does towards his covenant people. He looks at them, even in their folly, even in their madness, even while they are in the process of sinning and says, I do not hold your sins against you. And you say, well, that's too good to be true. And it is, but it's your Bible. God provides for his people when they have been messed up and when they are messing themselves up, this is the good news that you can come to God today and he offers holy bread to insane people who are liars. In our messiness, God graciously protects. Achish sees David, the one who has murdered, who has executed thousands of Philistines, says, this guy's nuts. Why have you brought him into my house? Don't I have enough crazy people in my house? I hope he's not talking about his bride. At that point, he says, I don't want anything to do with him. Get him out of here. And David is allowed to walk out of Gath, walk out of Philistine territory, and find his abode in the cave of Adullam. Later, David will come back and have his way with the Philistines. How does a crazy plan like that work? God. He's not finished with David. He's not giving David exactly what he deserves. How many times has God with, withheld the consequences of something we have done because he loves us and he wants to use us? And here we see God protecting his servant graciously, not because he deserves it, but because that is who God is. 
At this point, we might like just to end and say, well, that's good news. We provide the sin. God provides the provision and God provides the protection. But that's not how the story ends. It doesn't end on a high and happy note yet. Meanwhile, Saul is back here at his camp, found sitting on a throne, holding a scepter. His crown is on his head, and he's having a pity party. He hears David is alive and okay. And he's really just sad. He has set up all the Benjamites, like Samuel said he would, to be his servants, and they're all around him, the Benjamites. And he's saying, why aren't you more faithful in serving me? And why have you plotted with him like my son Jonathan has done? It's at that point that Doeg, who saw David with Ahimelech, says, I, I know what's happening. The problem is God's on his side, and the problem is God's priest helped him. Tell me more, Saul says. Yeah, Ahimelech. Ahimelech gave him food, gave him a sword, and gave him divine guidance. Saul's going to hold court. Bring him here to me. Ahimelech comes. Ahimelech's household has to come with him, and most of the priests from Nob have to come. Saul says, what have you done? Ahimelech says, what are you doing? This is your son-in-law. This is the best servant you have. Has he not done well? He's done nothing wrong. Saul doesn't want to hear it, and Saul says, you're done. And he looks at his servants, and he says, take him out. Take out Ahimelech, and take out his priests. The servants back away. We're not touching this. I mean, you're wanting to take out God's priests. He looks at Doeg and says, you do it. And Doeg is only so happy to kill 85 priests that day, 85 priests of God. And then he goes to the city of Nob, and takes out all the other priests, the men, the women, children, and animals. Genocide. This is what happens when antichrists set themselves up against the Lord's anointing. You see, just because God gives grace doesn't mean that he reverses all the consequences of our sins. Ahimelech had no clue that he was necessarily walking in to the fire. David didn't love him enough to tell him the truth about why he was on the run, why he had no one with him. That would have been Ahimelech's business to figure out how he wanted to help, who he wanted to bring with him to the meeting, how he wanted to respond, should he have taken off and hit the hills. David harmed Ahimelech, and God did not remove the consequences. And so, yes, we come to the house of the Lord today, but we hate sin today. Hate it with all your might, for it harms you, it harms your family, it harms your neighborhood. Oh, God will not hold you account for your sin if you are his child. But sin is no laughing matter, and never is it to be played with. David learns of this because one priest escapes. 
And here we see that in our messiness, God graciously forgives and restores. You see, when Saul is presented with his sin, he never says, I'm the man, I'm sorry. But when David is presented with his sins here, later on when he has a a problem with the census that he takes, and later on when he and Bathsheba hook up, when he is confronted with his sin, something happens in in that God sends someone his way to confront him, and on the inside, he is willing to say, I'm a dog, I've done wrong, I have not been faithful. And in this instance, you see in the text where David says, I knew Doeg was there. And I knew Doeg would go tell Saul. And I'm the one responsible for the death of your father and all your priestly friends. It falls on me. But I have been praying and I'm asking you to stay with me I'm asking you to trust me as we both trust God together and I will look out for you and give you recompense and care for you and restore. Stay with me even though I'm a sinner and the priest stays with him. What we see is that God is the one who provides. God is the one who protects and God is the one who forgives and restores. But the text is not quite ending. We have one more point. In our messiness, God sovereignly works and wins. Though David has made a mess of things, and God has seen it because he's present and he's all-seeing, and God hates sin. God has seen the horrible sin against David, but he's also seen the horrible sin of David. This is what we know. David has a Holy Spirit that will not let him go. David has God. One man wrote, David was beaten all the way down until there was no way to look up, look but up. I want to start again. Such a great quote. David was beaten all the way down until there was no way to look but up. And when he looked up, God was there bringing this bunch of unknowns to him little by little until finally they proved themselves to be the mightiest men of Israel. Wow. God comes to David in lots of different ways. God provides, he protects, he forgives, he restores. He's not finished molding his man. He's not finished fulfilling his prophecy. He's not changed his mind. God doesn't repent about his salvation gifts. So God brings David a people. It's a motley crew, but David's a motley leader. He's not good. And around David, these other people start assembling. The Bible uses those who are distressed, those who are in debt. These are the people that come his way, those who are dissatisfied. Chuck Swindoll writes, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But the bar is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It's democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be a fellowship where people could come in and say, I'm sunk, 
I'm beat. I've made a mess of things. This is David as in the cave of Adullam, he is surrounded by misfits that the world mocks, which is what Christ does. He says he doesn't use those who are well-esteemed by the world, but he uses those who are mocked and he brings them together. Not the noble people, people that know we have a history, know we have addictions, know that we have testimonies that we have sullied. And God gathers them around him and God starts ministering to them. These are believers. Why do I say they're believers? Right now, all the power's with Saul. Who wants to be with the man of sorrows, the suffering Messiah, who's in a cave? 400 men do, and it'll grow to 600 men. And David's family does as they come together. This is what Jesus does as he takes people who have made a mess of things and people who have been messed with, and they find community around the Messiah. And what ends up happening from this motley crew? They become mighty men. They learn to fight. They learn to love one another. They will risk their lives to bring water and nourishment to one another. What a picture of the church. This is who we are. We're not the noble. We're not the faithful. We're the people who have been messed with and have made a mess. And we're at our bottom Looking up, we're on our backs with nothing else to do. And there's God looking at us, smiling, saying, I'm not done with you yet. We have work to do. We have something to accomplish. And David, at this point, ends the story by caring for his family, getting them to Moab, caring for the priest, listening to the voice of Gad who says, get out of here, it's time for you to go back to Judah. He takes care of business. David is a sinner, encouraged by his Lord, accompanied by his people, surrounded by the priest and prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit, making war, waiting for the day when the health, wealth, and prosperity really do come his way in God's appointed time. So we end and we say, who here has been messed with? Man, I have a long list as I prayed through this this morning. I wasn't going to use names. I was going to talk about you. You got some hurts, people. Who here is messed up? I got regrets. I've harmed people. Who's on their back looking up, saying, where are you, God? And God is sitting here saying, I'm here. I know who you are. I see what's going on in your chest. And I have bread for you. I have wine for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will protect you from the devil and bring you into my arms one day. I will forgive you. I will restore you, and you're not damaged goods. I will use you and your story. You see, who else would know all about what happened with Ahimelech except Doeg and David? And Doeg's dead. Who else would know what happened in Gath except David? David was willing to tell his story and use his story. 
because he knows he's not the only one being messed with who messes up.